So, Beto, I have a bunch of emails for us to read on the air and answer. They're from patrons. What do you say we do that, bro? Let's do it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, and I'm also a professor. My name is Umberto Castaneda, and I like to uh, go around refilling pens that I've run out of ink. Pat from Michigan wrote in and said, Is it possible to have different personalities if you speak different languages, especially if you used one of the language to cope with physical and emotional abuse as a child? I grew up in another country and moved to the U.S. when I was nine and learned English at that point. I'm more calm and don't express emotion in English, and I'm more easily annoyed in Spanish. End of email. Basically, what Pat is saying is they grew up in a place where they spoke Spanish, and there was a lot of difficulties when they were growing up. And they seem to notice they are more emotionally sensitive when they're speaking Spanish. And since being nine years old, come to the U.S. learning English and had a much more stable life, when they speak English, they're, they're, they don't even really get into emotions. Berto, as a bilingual person yourself, can you relate? It's fascinating. Uh, I, can, I can think of a few areas where that sounds familiar, but not fully. For example, I can only count, like, you know, if, if I ask you how many uh, days are in August, do you know? Well, I always have to count. I think it's 31. One, oh, okay. Two, so three, you do four, a little four, finger five, thing, six, right? Seven, eight. Yeah, it's, okay. it's 31. So that's great. Well, I had a thing in Spanish. It was enero, febrero, marzo, abril, mayo, junio, julio, agosto. Like, right? Or right, you do, do twice on the pinky. So agosto is 31. So I always have to do that in Spanish because that's how I, I learned it when I was really little. I have things like that where I just learned it really young in Spanish. And so like my head has to go there. Uh, also, when I read Spanish books, it's hard for me because the the language is so rich and so much like I stopped reading books when I was like 14 or 15 so in Spanish you know so there's a lot of learning that that happens in those last few years before you're like 20 Uh, but as far as emotions when I speak in Spanish a few things do come to mind one is family Colombia food Um, so that's interesting I do make that association so as soon as I'm speaking in Spanish I'm like oh it feels that way I also feel, to me, when I'm speaking in Spanish, um, I feel like it's, uh, I'm a child again, like I feel a little more youthful, which means it makes sense because I, I stopped speaking Spanish in full when I was 15. But I wouldn't say that I feel like I have two different personalities. I, I don't feel that way. So for all the Spanish speakers out there, what secret coded in Spanish message do you want to give all of them right now, Bruno? Uh-huh. Hola, me llamo Humberto Castañeda. Tengo un trabajo y solo un trabajo. Y esto es lo que les quiero decir. En la vida toca trabajar muy fuerte para que lleguemos a las metas que tenemos para poder estar feliz y disfrutar el resto de nuestros días. Hasta luego. <laughs> Did you just tell them all to rise up against white people and and uh, something like that? Stri- strike back. Um, so, all right. Um, looking at my notes here, sometimes I just have to read it out loud and wonder what I was saying. Many people report feeling different when speaking different language. Oh, okay. So, research has found that personality can change as the person switches languages. Not for everyone. Participants interpreted the same events differently depending on which language they were using at the time. So, when and this was a Spanish-English study, so regarding assertiveness, which, when people were speaking and thinking and hearing that language, um, what difference regarding assertiveness between English and Spanish do you, th- or, yeah, oh, do you think was, was present? Oh, I would imagine... When, let's start with when they're speaking Spanish or English. Wh- okay. did, which one did they feel more assertive as they were speaking? speaking? Uh, I would imagine they, they felt more assertive in Spanish. Why? Uh, okay, so if I'm speaking in Spanish, I'm going to say, uh, ¿Ya estuvo la comida? It's like the vowels are bigger and it's uh, the sounds are like, I don't know, stronger. It's like, vamos, 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 nos vamos a... I don't know, it's, it's like... 
I feel like we're making more declarative, definitive statements. Well, that's Spanish. true. That's what their research found, is that <laughs> Spanish-speaking people felt more assertive for bilingual people. They felt more assertive when they were speaking Spanish. Yeah, because like in English, we're like, I don't know, I guess we could like, maybe we should blah, blah, blah. And maybe, of course, it's like modern English versus... <laughs> <laughs> we're, all, we're all valley girls, essentially. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> and in when they're hearing Spanish, they also saw the people as more assertive. So essentially, this you would be in the study, and if yeah. you were just given a task to do something in Spanish, you would rate yourself, and you'd be like, oh, I, I felt you know this amount assertiveness as I said that statement. They're like, okay, well, say the same state in English, and how assertive did you feel? And if you yeah. watched someone speaking <laughs> Spanish saying something, and then you translated the same thing into English, it would sound more assertive in the Spanish to you as it would to the English to you. Yeah, it's like if I say, as a people, we must rise up. Or if I say, como un pueblo, tenemos que levantarnos. You know, slightly more. <laughs> yeah, I can hear that. I can hear that, yeah. Uh, another study, they asked Japanese-American people, such as myself, but I don't speak Japanese, but people that did speak Japanese, to complete sentences in both Japanese and English, and they proposed different endings depending on the language they use. So a statement like, when, when, my wishes, when, when my wishes conflict with my family, dot, 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 when my wishes conflict with my family, and then these Japanese English speakers were asked to complete each thing in Japanese and in, in, in English. And when like one participant in Japanese wrote, when my wishes conflict with my family, it is a time of great unhappiness. That's what they wrote in Japanese. And when they completed it in English, when my wishes conflict with my family, I do what I want. (laughs) (laughs) So same person and wow. and they and they did this study so that there was time in between so you would forget what you said oh okay maybe I was even like, maybe even like weeks or months uh-huh. and they just asked the same person to to complete the <laughs> sentence the exact same sentence That's fascinating and when they completed it in japanese they're like my when my wishes conflict with my family it is a time of great unhappiness <laughs> in english when my wishes conflict with my family I do what I, I want. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. But it, it is funny because language is tied to what you use the language for and what you see people using the language for. Right. And the American culture, the U.S. culture with, uh, is such a, like, yeah, I do what I want. Right. Go west and I conquer. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know why there is this effect, but the speculation is that's one of the factors is that, uh, you know, whatever Spanish-speaking country culture you come from, uh, Japanese culture, American culture, there are associations that all of us have with it. And you just named one, like in America, we're independent. We don't, we don't listen to anyone. We don't even yeah. listen, to, you know, wearing a mask, screw you. Um, by the way, I am so still quarantining myself uh-huh. to the point where I'm not interacting with anyone. And, and actually my family isn't interacting. Our, our uh-huh. household isn't interacting with anyone. We we are at the far end of the curve in terms of like how many humans we've come into contact with. Yeah. So much so that so I went uh I had to go to the bank for um I had to go to an ATM actually uh, yesterday. Uh-huh. And uh, I got there and I wasn't wearing a mask. Oh gosh. <laughs> like I didn't even bring a mask with me. Because you didn't think about it. Because I didn't think about it because I'm never doing anything that involves wearing a mask. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it that's how uh, isolated so I am. <laughs> yeah. You're so far to the isolation that you don't wear a mask. <laughs> yeah, that, that I don't need to because I, I never <clears throat> you know have a reason to it. Anyway, but I felt bad. I was like, oh, crap. Yeah. You know? and anyway, um, so other speculation, you know, culture, what cultural associations do you have? That's going to affect... You know, if, if, for example, if you're speaking English and you think of English speakers or the English-speaking people you came from as being more assertive or more independent or more this or that, whereas the Japanese speakers that you grew up with were more family-oriented, then it stands to reason that you would embody those things as you speak. Um, Also, who speaks that language to you would also affect things. If your family 
is the only people who speak Spanish with you. And then English is much more of a public language. Then you're going to feel different. Even though you're speaking Spanish away from your family, you might feel more homey and more familial with people in、yeah. the Spanish language for that reason. And actually, I can relate to that one. In fact, the other thing is that there are. There are constructions in different languages that don't exist in the other languages. For example, in Spanish, we have feminine and male、uh, properties for things, right? So、um, everything you name is either feminine or, or masculine, which is bizarre, right? But like, that's how it is. And、uh, the other part is diminutives. We, we apply diminutives to people and things all the time. And the more affection, the more diminutive it is. So you wouldn't be Kirk, you'd be Kirkito. <laughs> Hola, Kirkito. And If I don't like you, I'm if, like, hey, if Kirk. I, you mean, meaning yeah, even as an adult, you'd call me Kirkito? Well, not, not literally Kirkito. That'd be weird. But I,、um, like your relative, Gringo Ito? Gringo Ito? Chino <laughs> Ito? Chinito? Like, oh, gosh. No, like, look, between buddies, like, we kind of don't do that, right?、Um, but so my, my friend Eduardo. I might, well, I might call him. I might say, like, Eduardito, ¿qué pasó? Or I might say to my friend Juan Miguel, Juan Mi, or something like this. Like, we like, shorten, we diminutize. But definitely in the family,、um, <clears throat> you, you definitely would do that. But you would also say things, it wasn't just people. You'd say, like,、uh, like if I'm going to give you aguardiente, I might say, Toma aguardientico. You、mm. know, like, take this little aguardiente. <laughs> I see. Interesting. And, and so, like, there's things like that where when I'm speaking in Spanish, That doesn't even exist in English. So、uh, it is a different mental model in that sense. Yeah, it sort of cutifies everything. <clears throat> yeah. Another factor that might play a role is how old were you when you spoke that language?、Uh, the person who wrote in said that when they were young, they spoke Spanish, and when they were older, they spoke English. And so、right. uh, you might feel younger, or you might feel like you did when you were younger when you speak that language. And that was what I was reporting for me, too. Like, yeah. yeah. So, the, the larger topic here that I want to get into is social constructionism. And maybe at some point I'll do a whole episode on it. I'm not sure. I was worried about promising things and everyone gets, gets upset <laughs> when I don't deliver. But、uh, I love social constructionism. It blows my mind when I start going into it. When I was first exposed to social constructionism, I. It formalized a lot of the things that I had thought in very rudimentary ways up until that point. It's a very vast topic, but in general, it's a theory that examines the development of jointly constructed understandings. So we all have these various different understandings. Like in、uh, Bogota, when you do the diminutive version of someone's name, it, it means something, but why do, it doesn't. It doesn't inherently mean something. It means something because in Bogota and beyond, they, as a group, at some point slowly started to do this. And, and, it, and, it, and you know, a government official didn't stand up and say, We will now use diminutive to mean the following things. For example, you know, no one did that. It just emerged out of a social interaction, each person iterating on it and learning from each other. And the whole culture went down this road, and everyone just agreed, like, this is what we're going to do. No one person said, this is what we're going to do. So the, the society jointly constructed an understanding of that language quirk, if you will. And everything that we understand is this jointly constructed、uh, process. It's our shared assumptions about reality. And if you're not familiar with, You know, the, at least the category of philosophy I'm talking about, you know, it might just be like, I don't really get it. So we'll get into it in a second. But meanings are developed collectively, and particularly language is used to describe things.、Uh, you know, like the way that social constructionists will put it is that language is not used to describe reality, rather, language creates reality. So in social constructionism, language is a, a Key element in the development of these jointly constructed understandings. And when you have a language that has different words for different things, then different understandings will emerge out of that. Like 
in Spanish, if there's a word for, for you know, you said comida. So, you know, if, if there's a word for like, let's eat, then, and the word for whatever reason just has more consonants in it, you know, sounds more assertive, more harsh or something. Yeah. Then what will happen, according to this theory, potentially, is that a understanding about eating will become more harsh <laughs> than if you're in a language system like English where you're saying, let's eat. It sounds less, per, you know, percussive or something. Um, or if your name, you were born with a name like, you know, Ariana, well, that sounds kind of like a wistful, airy name. Whereas if, you're, if your name is Butch, then that'll affect how people treat you. And, and so it's all about language and how and it's very complicated and there's no way to codify this process but the effects can be seen particularly when you look at different cultures Nietzsche actually talked about this uh, I don't know if he was a social constructionist but um, his uh, philosophies are are conducive with it he said you know facts do not exist only interpretations so this is you know cultural relativism it's a postmodernism it's a whole thing and without going into the full detail of it, because it's a pretty complicated topic. But the idea is, is that if you speak different languages, one, you're probably in two different cultures that have different cultural understandings of what reality is and what everything means, you know, what family means, what food means, what, what sex means, what growing old means, what money means, what being tall means, what, mean, what means, you know, being assertive you know all these things are different in different cultures because different cultures will create an understanding about that uh, in in every culture and even little micro examples but um so just to get on on one very micro example of this birdo just to demonstrate for people the social construction of different ideas tell me what words you know just a set of one words uh, you know, one word sets with each color. What what words would you say to red? What things do you associate with fire, red? passion, love? Good. More? No, no, that's good. So it's similar to the general Western identifications of excitement, danger, and love. Okay. Yeah. But in other cultures, India, what is red associated with? Oh, I don't know. Okay. Uh, let me guess. Let me guess. Um, fun. Well, from an article I read, and I don't know, maybe Indians would disagree with me, but purity was identified. Oh, that's surprising. Yeah. For example, brides traditionally wear red wedding dresses. Wow. So if you wore a red wedding dress in the United okay. States, you are saying something <laughs> Something other than, you know, it's white yeah. is purity in Western yeah. societies. Right? Um, in That's China, crazy. in China, what does red represent? Oh, um, I know this. Uh, prosperity. Yeah. Luck, happiness, prosperity, these kinds of things. Very different. You know, in Western yeah. society, we don't look at red and think luck or happiness. Yeah. You know, we think love and danger and... Which is, know. it's very surprising because I always assumed that because of blood that red would have been a pretty universal you know kind of associate well actually uh, that and fire because fire being yellowish reddish i just always figured that it'd be danger and blood and right. passion right so what you're bringing up now is a very common conundrum or realization that people will make hopefully i think as they bump up against this sort of thing because the associations we have with red, in particular, I think, as Americans who only see one culture that we're in, will tend to say, well, the things we associate with red, it's just inherent. It's, it's, it's a part of nature that, of course, red is associated with love and danger, you know, because of blood or because that's what the heart is. You know, you, we have these things that we say, but these are not inherent. It's, when you look at other cultures completely different associations with those colors. Blue, what do you associate with blue? Fresh, cool, hope. What, what do you mean? Tell more about hope. Uh, well, I guess because blue to me feels uh, safe and 
there's oxygen and there's water. And so like that leads to life. And so that makes, makes me feel more hopeful. Right. So according to this article, they said that it is associated with safety and trust and masculinity, of course, authority, loyalty, security. So police officers, this kind of thing. That one's surprising. <laughs> and, and banks. What about in the East? What do they associate with blue? Royal. Royal. Oh, actually, that was a medieval thing, too. Royal. Because it was so hard to get blue. In the East, it is associated with immortality, spirituality, and heaven. Maybe oh, because okay. of the sky. I could see that. Hinduism, what is blue associated with? Oh, okay. I, I, I'd guess fertility. Uh, well, close love and divine joy. So in Hinduism, according to this article... If you're going to send a Valentine's card to your loved one, it would be blue and not red. Uh, green. Do, do you know why I guessed fertility, by the way? Why? Because of the oxygen connection. So I was thinking because, you know, they, if they, if they value uh, spiritualism and meditation and all of that has so much connection to breathing. So green, what, do you associate, what does Western society associate with green? Money, nature, um, but yeah, so luck, progress, environment, healthy. So in Western society, if you're trying to you know, have a good luck charm, it's green, and in China, it's red. Indonesia, what do they associate green with? Animals. Exorcism and huh. infidelity. Okay. What? Uh, China. Oh, green. What oh. do they associate green with? Wait, I, I, I actually have a theory about that one, because infections can be greenish <laughs> in color. Um, okay. Or China, they just, whatever reason, just the associations just bifurcated at some point, and that was that was what happened. Green, or the, or literally, their word for green is similar to their word for infidelity. You know, like uh, the like the number four in Asia, Japan. I know China. I think um, is associated with death, and from my memory. It's because the word for four is very close to the word for death. <laughs> It'd be like if we were like one, two, one, two, three, uh, debt, <laughs> I don't know, or something. Yeah. You know, it just looks that way and so just becomes associated with it. You know, it, it doesn't have any uh, logic to it other than that. Um, China associates green with infidelity. Uh, Mexico, what do they associate green with? Uh, uh, with snakes. Independence and patriotism. Uh, South America, what do they what do they associate green with? In Bogota, what do they associate green with? Nature, like we're both nature. wearing green right now. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I can only say what I would have associated yeah. with it, which is nature. Well, according to this one article, South America, which is a lot of different cultures, they said it associated with death. Um, really? Just wow. sort of rattling them off. Uh, orange. In Western society, often associated with autumn and warmth and harvest. Middle East, the article said it was associated with mourning and loss. But so, okay, so the orange one makes sense because you have uh, leaves changing color. They'll look orange. You'll have, you know, pumpkins and a lot of like uh, orange vegetables. And All right, let's take a break and let's answer another email. What do you say, Berto? Let's do it. So if you're going to convince all the Spanish-speaking people to become a patron, what would that sound like? Escúchenme. Hoy les hablo de algo muy importante. Nada es más importante que tus cabecitas, tus cerebritos, y ser saludable en, en, en esa mente. Así que tienes que ir a patreon.com y el, el podcast de psicología en la ciudad de Seattle. Si, si te metes ahí a ser patron, la vida será mejor, uh, la abundancia vendrá, el rojo significará sangre, el azul significará aire, todo estará correcto. Hazlo hoy. Question from patron Janet from Michigan writes, Umberto mentioned that he read An Eternal Gold, Golden Braid, and in that book they talk about consciousness. Berto, what are the theories of consciousness? And what are your own spiritual perspectives on it? Berto, um, what do you think? Yeah. So I, I got to say, first of all, I, uh, I came across the book when I was just starting college. 
I don't remember why I bought it, but I remember being, I think at the UW bookstore and I just saw this thing sitting there. First of all, the book, I don't know if all the editions are this way, but it's golden. It's like big and golden and it's got this big print on it. And it had names that, I, well, I recognized Bach and I guess I knew MC Escher, but I didn't know who Godel was at the time. But I just thought like, whoa, what is this? So I picked it up and it was a real deep, difficult read, especially because every time I came to a puzzle, I would have to stop until I would try to solve the puzzle. And in some cases I couldn't. And so I, I would be stuck for a while. <laughs> um, but anyways, um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know all the, the variants, but there are some general categories. Um, so there is the classic idea of dualism, like the Descartes uh, idea that there is the separation between mind and body. Uh, some people look at it as a separation between mind and the rest of reality. Um, Descartes' point was like, the only thing he could be sure of was that he was aware of being himself. It was like, I think, therefore I am. And and in his th- in his philosophy, because he was also fairly religious and he was an a, apologist for the church, his philosophy all centered around like, well, there's the soul, there's the mind, and then that, that's not part of like physics and the physical world, but there's um, an, an experience of that. And then there's everything else we can talk about in the real world. So that's one general category, which is, again, that the mind is separate from reality. Yeah. Rene Descartes in, you know, the mid 1600s. So just yeah. to put it in yeah. context where but there's plenty there's still of people dualist today. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Where he and others were at the beginning of the, or sort of early enlightenment were starting to look at the physical natural world and say, huh, maybe not everything can just be hand waved. as like, well, God did it. Maybe there's a physical reality that we could investigate there. Like, right. what is gravity? What is the planets? What is the sun? What is, how, how does a bird fly? What is this thing that is between us that we breathe in and out of our bodies? You know, that we don't just say, well, it's just spirits and gods. You know, we, yep. we say, okay, let's actually try to measure this stuff. And what, but what if we turn that, microscope onto us what are we well we're just a flesh and blood we're all these you know we're starting to look at all these things okay well but what is consciousness you know what where where is my soul and there were all these ideas before this it's like well the soul is here this is where you're this is where you are you know and those experiments didn't work out and of course, the church, the Catholic Church in Europe is going, whoa, 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 you're about to say that there is no soul, that we are just, we're just flesh and blood like animals, that yep. that there's nothing uh, to go to heaven, that there isn't a transcendentness of of spiritual, you know, of spiritual nature. And, and Descartes said, okay, okay, fine, um, there's, there's this body and it's all physical, yeah. But there's this other thing called the mind, and you can, you can call that a spirit or a soul or whatever, but there's this other emergent, or not emergent, but there's this other separate thing that isn't, you know, might be connected somehow to the physical reality of your body, but but it's not it's not of the body. It's not of the earth. It It is existing on, you know... I don't know what words they had to hear in order for it to pass, but... You, you are very right in pointing out that saying something contrary to that would have quite possibly meant death. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you're right. I, I'm being unfair to poor Descartes. In, yeah. Uh, but anyways... Well, this that, wasn't a guy from five years ago who thought the Earth was no, flat. Yeah, you know, he was absolutely. in 1641, he was publishing things. And like I said, this is still not a... Well, because since there's no way to <laughs> disprove it, <laughs> this is still not... Uh, a settled matter. There are some modern people that think, well, well, especially, again, especially if you're religious, you might actually absolutely believe in a soul and think, well, no, it's the soul that's the conscious part. In fact, that's why a lot of religions don't think that animals or lower creatures have consciousness. They just think, well, humans do because of this special soul thing uh, and whatnot. Uh, so another, another model, which actually was an older model, but it, it surprisingly survived really late, really long, was this idea of a, of a little person inside of you, like a humunculus, they called it. But it wasn't necessarily a literal person. It was more like there was some part of your brain that was actually the part of you that was you. And it was like a little controller for the rest of you. And now, 
in reality, that very well may, may that very well may be how it is in the sense that some parts of your brain are more in charge of consciousness. But but some people took it to the literal extreme of like, oh, okay, so there is some part inside your cranium that is like a little person or a little entity that's actually you, and it's not really part of your brain or something. It's just like a controller. Um, that I, of course, as soon as we started dissecting people and looking in, there was no such creature. Um, now more modern, like there's the idea that basically as long as you can appear to be conscious, you are conscious. So this is the line of thinking that if you can, for example, uh, pretend to be a, a human, uh, pass what's called the Turing test, where it should like, where a computer could pretend to be human and other humans would be unable to distinguish if that thing is human or not. Uh, there are some people that believe that that's all it takes for that thing to be called conscious, that th that, that thing has consciousness. Uh, in other words, their, their belief is that uh, quacking like a duck means you are a duck in that case. Um, there's others that disagree with that, and they say, no, 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 no. Well, you might appear to be conscious, but it, we don't know what's happening inside. And in fact, we can't know what's happening inside. So these folks believe that the experience of being conscious is only knowable to the specific conscious being. The example is, uh, there's this famous example about what, is, what it would be like to be a bat. And you can imagine that with virtual reality, we could put on goggles and uh, headphones and everything and actually have a great simulation of being a bat. But you know that it wouldn't feel like being a bat because you would still be a human seeing through like baddish type of eyes and baddish types of ultrasonic sounds. It's nowhere near the same. To feel what it's like to be a bat, you would have to not have all the human faculties, which means you would not remember this feeling at all or be aware verbally of anything you experienced. So like, you, you couldn't actually do it. So that, that's another set of folk. And they, they actually think that the, the nature of consciousness is such that we can never really experience any other creature's consciousness or any other thing's consciousness. There is another line of thought that thinks that the whole universe is conscious and that everything in the universe has consciousness. They think that uh, each thing has more or less consciousness, like a pebble is less con has less consciousness than a human. To clarify on that, it, it all depends on what the definition of consciousness is. You know? yeah. do, do we say consciousness is the ability to know that you have consciousness is that right. what consciousness you know is a dog aware that it is aware you know can, can a dog reflect and say i am right now looking at a squirrel and i want to chase it isn't that interesting i'm gonna go chase yeah. that squirrel or is the dog completely reacting out of instinct and just immediate reactivity it sees a squirrel and it just runs in the same way yeah. that when I'm unconscious, when I'm sleeping and you like poke me with a needle and my arm kind of flings back just, and, and you ask me the next day, like, do you remember, you know, when I was at night poking me with the needle and Berto, I don't appreciate you spying on me when I'm sleeping. That's weird. You, you need to stop, especially if it was an experiment. <laughs> it was an experiment. Um, was I conscious, you know, is that, you know, was I, did I do that? Yeah. I mean, I, my brain registered the thing and my, my hand pulled back, but we wouldn't say that's super conscious, you know, when a worm, uh, you know, swiggles around and does its thing, how conscious is, you know, uh, an, uh, a, but when you expand the definition of conscious to, I can't remember the exact definition they're using when they're saying everything is conscious, they're basically saying like input comes in and then it changes something and then output happens, you know, like, yeah. Like a human uh, inputs, uh, a dog inputs the visual cue of a squirrel and there's a processing of some kind and then there's a chasing yep. of the squirrel. Humans see uh, the color red and something happens, you know, some, some kind of physiological or, and, then, and then some reaction to that color. Um, and a pebble, when, you know, you throw it at or something hits it or oxygenation happens, you know, there's something that happens to it, and then there's output. And then thus you could say, because, you know, this philosophy isn't just just masturbatory. It's, it's basically saying, well, if we really just reduce human consciousness down to its most fundamental level, all, that's, that's all that we can really say about what we are, because anything beyond that, we're just aggrandizing ourselves. You know, we're just like, look how special we are, because we, you know, 
we're the top of the pyramid when it's just like, you know, all consciousness, all a brain is, 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 is just processing information to produce an outcome that might, you know, help one survival or it's just a response, if you will, just a natural response that your, that your brain produces. And, and humans have a very complex set of outcomes, but that doesn't mean it's somehow transcendent to some other plane. It's, it's still of the material plane in the same way a pebble processes information, you know, in terms of definition. And thus you could, by extension, say the entire universe is one giant consciousness because it is, you know, reacting to inputs constantly. And, and if someone was to step back from the universe and look at it, they'd be like, oh, isn't that interesting? That thing, when it does that thing, it reacts in this way. Yeah. Um, and, and that that's when, so because the way that you described it, it could be misinterpreted as a spiritual, like a new age it, belief. So there are two variants of it. One of them is what you're describing, which is exactly, well, almost exactly what I believe uh, leads to what we call consciousness. The other one is absolutely a spiritual interpretation and it's rooted on a, I think, fans, fanciful extrapolations from quantum physics. Right. And what it's, happens It's the people that, who are like, well, string theory, it's about vibrations yes. and, and, and sometimes I feel vibrations in my body <laughs> and so quantum physics means that you and I are connected because of, you know, entanglement and it's like, no, you don't understand yeah. string theory or yeah. quantum physics. <laughs> so, so absolutely right. You're, you, thank you for clarifying that. They're, they're, because these two do exist. There are folks that believe that a pebble has some sort of universal consciousness. Like a spirit. It's a, like the a same spirit. way, yeah. same yeah, way exactly. the human has a soul, exactly. uh, the pebble has a soul too. <laughs> And what I personally believe is actually more of what you were describing, which is that uh, I, I believe that there is a level of computation happening, uh, uh, not simultaneously, but within a couple seconds, where there is enough awareness of inputs that uh, we experience as humans, we experience as like, oh, look at me, I'm a human, I think all these things, I'm aware, I'm conscious and stuff like that, that a cat experiences without a, a written or or a very specific language, but it still experiences. And that, you know, a, a nematode doesn't have much of an experience of. But Is it nematode still, or nematode? Uh, you probably know better. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It could be both. Nematode. Let's call it nematode. Anyways, and then, uh, so there, there's a couple other models. So one thing is, uh, speaking of quantum physics, there are some folks that believe, uh, Roger Penrose, I believe is one of them, that believe that, um, that you do not get consciousness at anything other than at the quantum level. In other words, that it is quantum uh, quantum reactions and interactions that lead to consciousness. And therefore, that you couldn't, uh, for example, uh, have a conscious computer that was not doing the same quantum uh, cal calculations or quantum reactions. Uh, so that's that's interesting. There, there's no, of course, none of these things are, are proven. They're just all different models. Just chime in on that one. Yeah. It's a bit of a nonsensical, and I don't, I haven't heard the argument, but everything is quantum, you know, our word quantum describes a set of physics that is at a very small scale. And oh, that, yeah, that set of physics is happening in your brain. So to say that quantum physics is playing a role in consciousness is ridiculous. It's like saying atoms are playing a role in consciousness. Let me clarify, because what they mean is that instead of a neuron's calculation ending at sort of the cellular level and like, you know, how much action potential, all these things. Uh, the, the, the idea is that the, the ultimate calculation is rolling a quantum dice, essentially, like right. performing a quantum calculation, yeah. which unlike our current digital computers, that would just be doing very linear processing. Now, one, one way to think about it is simply a matter of capacity. But as you know, that's not quite right, because the, the quantum idea is that it, it, it can resolve like infinite potentials in, in a single computation. So, um, anyways, I wanted to say that the last main main thing would be uh, there. There are some folks that believe that uh, you cannot actually have consciousness, and that we are not conscious. Um, that we are simply uh, experiencing a simulation of reality, um, and so like the, what people call like, "Oh, I'm a conscious being." Like that's not really a thing. That it's just like. We are just experiencing a simulation. Yeah. An actual simulation or uh, it's a simulated sense of consciousness? It's a simulated sense because like right. th this, this goes along with the 
and this is true, right? Like everything we experience around us are models, like overly simplified models of what technically is happening around us at a quantum and cellular and atomic level, of course, right? right? But then they extrapolate from there to say like, you know, there's actually no pilot sitting there. It's all just like these little quantum reactions. And that thing that thinks it's conscious is just another yeah. simulated understanding of what's actually happening. Right. But I find it like a semantic trick. Like, yeah, it is. It's total semantic. And it drives yeah. me crazy. This is, so everything you've been saying is very interesting. And I didn't know a lot of it. Uh, uh, but you're getting into the part that I do know about, which is on the internet, there is these <laughs> arguments of people like there's two camps or maybe three. Um, but there are two... There's one loud camp on the internet that, you know, they'll often point to these studies that show that your decision is made prior to you knowing about what decision you're going to make, you know? Yeah. Someone asks you, you know, pick between A and B, and they record the moment in which you say, I just made a choice. And then through various different measures, they figure out that your brain actually had decided on A prior to you knowing you had decided on A. Okay. So what this shows is that point, which, you know, is that you don't have free will, you don't have consciousness, you're, it's an illusion to say that you have any choice in everything. Okay. So again, it's a semantic thing. So what are we talking about when we're saying consciousness? What are we saying about choice? I think it's not un, um, it's not unreasonable to, to think that as we make a choice, you know, like, okay, hot dog or hamburger? And you're like, hmm, you have to make a choice between one or the other. It's, it wouldn't be an, uh, unsurprising to know that there are precursors neurologically to the moment in which you coagulate the conscious decision, I'm going to pick a hot dog. There are associations, there's emotions that are happening out of your awareness that are sort of bubbling under the surface that are happening out of your awareness that might play a major role in your decision to say, I'm going to eat a hot dog. And, but it's in what is free will? Is it free will that all those bubbling associations happened that sort of said, no hot dog. I want, I definitely want hot dog. Or did all those bubbling associations kind of come into consciousness enough so that the conscious mind, with its ability of free will, decided to say, hmm, you know what, I'm feeling hot dog, so I'm going to go hot dog. But I could go hamburger because I don't want to go with what I feel like I want because I always go with what I feel like I want. I'm going to go hamburger. Now, the non-free will people will say, well, there was some other precursor to that that was predetermined and it's an illusion that you had. But one, we don't really know the answer to these questions because we don't know how the brain works, which we just have to admit. It's hard to admit that to, to you know in, in these kinds of conversations because just to throw up your hands and be like, you know what? <laughs> like in 100 years, they're going to laugh at these conversations. They're going to be like, uh, you guys were dumb because you didn't have the level of resolution we have today. But um, so there's that. But in terms of philosophy, in terms of like free will, in terms of consciousness, we have hundreds of years of discussion that still applies today, regardless of what's happening in the brain. The brain uh, helps, you know, when we actually do study the brain, it does help us to kind of add to the conversation. But it is still largely a philosophical conversation. And what I find, and this is my big point, Berto, this is me just rambling, but (laughs) my, my big point here is that essentially what I find is there are I don't know, zealots or something on the internet who are just hell bent on making sure that everyone understands they're real smart and that you don't have consciousness and that you don't have free will and that religion is stupid and that we're all just machines and that you're, you're clinging on to some level of consciousness is, is evidence of your stupidity and your, you're a sheeple who is still of the Descartian split and you're an idiot and you, you don't understand the science. You don't understand how these things work. And when I hear those people in the air, I'm just like, my God, dude, like it's almost always a dude, by the way. It, I'm just like, it, it's a, it's a, it's somewhat semantic. <laughs> like what is your definition of free will? What is your definition of consciousness? Cause you might be yelling at someone who has a completely definition of those things. Yep. Well, you, you, uh, 
You were yelling at me because I just made a free will video two weeks ago or a week ago or something. But what did you do in the video? What did you say? Uh, I was arguing the same thing I've argued before with you that, uh, uh, and I certainly am not demonizing anyone or anything. And I'm, but I was just making the point that uh, what we mean by ultimate free will is physically impossible. Like it's, it, it doesn't, there's no, there's no way it can what, happen. What you mean, what your straw man, I don't know your definition of free will, but the, that there is an impart, that there is a, an impartial decider that is making calls left and right on a daily basis on things. What do you mean by impartial decider? That's the thing. There can't be an impartial designer. Well, what do you the, mean designer. by impartial decider? That is not affected by, that is only influenced by its own volition, <laughs> which is impossible. Because, okay. you know, you, you, as you've pointed out, and so here I'll concede to you, our brains are the product of our, of our society, right? And a whole bunch of little preconceived or prearranged uh, reactions to things that are stimulus. Um, so at any given moment, when you decided to have the hot dog, it, it was either, you have to say, it was either a quantum roll of the dice, in which is a quantum roll of the dice, not a free will choice. But, but I include a, that in the free will yeah, definition. And that quantum roll yeah. of the dice is part of the free will. Are there sure. lots of things that are um, outside of the free will? If, you know, if there's a room <laughs> and yeah. there's a dude in the room or a set of a committee in a room or something, and that's the, that's the conscious free will. Are there things coming into that room that the committee has no control over? Yes, that there's a lot of things yeah. that that person has no control over. But there is some things, there's a set of things, a small set, if you will, that that committee has some control over. Now, when they start interfacing with their body and their brain and you know the rest of their brain, if you will, and society more things happen that are out of their control, but there is a, there is a choice there. You know, the fact that I chose to make an episode about, you know, patron Janet wrote in uh, and I, I I could have ignored it. And I do sometimes some, some emails I'm just like, "Eh, I don't know if that's our our alley or our, you know, our lane. I don't know if it's going to be interesting. Um, I don't know if the listeners want to hear us talk about it. But I chose. Now, were there a lot of things out of my awareness that affected the decision to to bring this up in today's episode? Absolutely. But there's a part of me that absolutely thought about it and listened to my emotional associations that are out of my control or uh, the cultural associations that were coming in, you know, from left and right. And the yep. future thinking, I was thinking, well, you know, Berto will, pro- will probably have things to say and listeners will probably enjoy, you know, it's psychological related. There's probably a set of listeners that are full on consciousness geeks around this. And so they're, you know, looking forward to this kind of thing. And, right. and that committee and that group, that room, the homunculus <laughs> uh, made a choice and, yep. and I'm calling that free will. Now you could argue that, it it was a product of previous decisions that led to the committee having a preconceived notion of the various inputs, and thus it doesn't but it, have. But them. it practically feels and acts like free will, is what you're saying, right? And so and we I'm can adjudicate it, it in a court of law and stuff. Yeah, Absolutely, I'm calling totally it free will now. And and no one can. And I've never heard an argument compelling enough to let go of that notion, other than when they call free will something else. And then say, you don't have free will. And I'm like, well, you're just defining free will differently than I am. And you're attacking that, which is fine. But you're not. But it, you're, I'm calling free will something else. The, the reason it became something that mattered to me recently was the Sam Harris argument of uh, empathy, which was that um, although we absolutely need to treat each other as if we have effective free will and we need to work that way because that's how our lives feel. And we absolutely need to have laws around that and need to adjudicate those laws. What we don't necessarily have to have is the hatred and the anger because we could be more empathetic to the, whether or not the reality is there or not. The fact is people are a product of their environment, which, you know, I will concede to you. (laughs) Um, So therefore, yeah, when someone made the decision to pull the trigger, you could say that they have free will and they should be removed from society and they should pay a price. But do we have to be angry and hateful? And that's his, that's his point. And yeah, I'm like, well, oh, that's a good I don't point. know who this Sam Harris guy is, but I 100% agree with your characterization of that. Our, whenever I've looked into 
these sorts of cases personally or podcast-wise, yeah. I've always said, oh, my initial conclusion about who this person was and why they did it was wrong. I, now that I know who they are and where they came from, now I might have had less empathy by the time I investigated them. Could be. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but I definitely had greater understanding and, and did not know one, you know, when I see an anti-masker screaming into, you know, and someone is calling him a Karen at the, at the Home Depot, I know enough now that if I knew that person, I would understand it. And when I look yeah. at it, it bothers me and I'm upset by it. And I'm like, woman, put on a goddamn mask. Yeah. And we should um, still legislate and we should still do all that stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. But when I, when I know her, uh, I see the full person. I, I see probably a lot of good things that she's doing. And I understand the traumas or the echo chamber or whatever it was, the algorithm on Facebook that led her down a certain rabbit hole that literally cut her off from, from good information and fed her misinformation later upon misinformation. Yeah. And of course she's, I mean, from her perspective, you know, this is what's happening. You know, a, a, another common longer term example is anti-abortion people. Um, I, I've looked and known enough of people like this to know like where they're coming, you know, literally people who kill uh, people who work at abortion clinics. I, I don't condone it. I of course think it's morally wrong and socially wrong and uh, politically wrong, but I understand where it comes from because when you, when you conclude, which is not completely crazy that a, a human life begins at least somewhat close to conception, you know, say a, a two months later, especially when you look at the little person like progressing in their, in their right. biology, then to have an abortion is akin to walking up to us, to an infant and shooting him in the head to them, yeah. to other people. It's a completely different social construction because of their understandings and to be raised in the world where that's the point of view and to be shown a bunch of images that sort of support that. And it's not a hard argument to support, honestly. Yep. Uh, then, of course, that is going to compel at least radical, shall we, I don't know, a particular political point of view that doesn't uh, coincide with mine in terms of like what the Supreme Court is supposed to be doing. And, uh, but to say to somehow connect it to free will, I guess is interesting. I guess now that you're saying it, it's like for, for people, Sam Harris yourself to say like, well, we have to, we have to sort of break down free will because if we don't, we'll over attribute negative or, or evil intent. I, you know, I think that would be the point. That'd be the more salient point to me to make to people is like, you don't understand where they're coming from. <laughs> like you don't understand how they, the A to B to C to Z that got them to where they're at right now. And once you right. understand that, then you would at least have a more empathy and, and you're not going to just label them as a Karen in that moment. It, it's this a more extreme, or I don't know if it's a more extreme example, but like if you take a drug addict or an alcoholic and you're like, you said you were going to stop. Right. I told you to stop. But you didn't. Yeah. And you have free will. Damn it, you should have. Right? Did you make okay. that argument in the video? No, I didn't. You should have, man. That's I a should've. good that's a good point. So that that's the case of like, yeah, I know that socially we say that. But it turns out it's a lot more complex than that. And in their head, right. in the moment, you think they had a choice, but it kinda didn't. Socially, yeah. biology, whatever. Yeah, chemically. That's a, that's a perfect example because yeah. at least I hope the listeners understand that when you suffer, for example, from heroin addiction it the, the person often would love to not use heroin it doesn't yeah. give them any pleasure anymore it causes all these problems in their life they might have almost died a couple times from accidentally overdosing and their free will committee <laughs> is overruled <laughs> is all you know every, all 100 people you know out of 100 are like let's not use heroin today <laughs> 
but there's and then the drunk guy comes in. Hey, let's use heroin. <laughs> but but then there's all these messages around like, well, you're worthless, or it's gonna hurt, or then then it does hurt, and then the the compulsive energies start coming in of just like yeah. It, the tension rising of like you need it it's it's an if you just do it you'll feel better and you know the room is slowly getting hotter and hotter and it's just like well if we just all decide to use heroin you know it'll it'll bring us down to a nice 72 in here um and <laughs> and and so does that person have free will uh, you know i think a lot of us would say you know people who understand addiction would say no uh, people do not have free will over individual acts of using um, almost universally. But a person does have free will to enter treatment, to create a system around them, to go on a, you know, Suboxone, to, uh, you know, go on a campaign so that they don't need to rely on inefficient or inadequate free will in the moment. And that does involve the free will. Yeah, it's, it's and plenty like, of so people the, have used that free will to get sober. Right. The, the way I look at it is that your, your brain, you can program it at all times. And the way you program it is feeding a consistent input that leads to certain outputs, right? So, yeah, if, if you continue to feed your brain with certain inputs over time, you will make decisions that is more aligned with those inputs. But that's unfortunately why the, the kid that is abused as, as a little kid later in life is doing some some crazy things apparently by free will because they were conditioned into their brain. And so like, I think that uh, again, this isn't about, Oh, and therefore we shouldn't prosecute crimes or we shouldn't expect better from each other. None of that. Right. It's absolutely, we should expect free will. We should act as if we fully have it, et cetera. But maybe we can increase our empathy because of that realization that, okay, people are a lot more intricate than just, Hey, it's easy. Just say no. Right. And to extend it to crime, it, if you super believe in free will, then you believe, well, a deterrent of going to prison or going to prison for a couple of years will deter you from committing the crimes in the future. We find through research this is just not the way it works. And when we compare our American justice system regarding some crimes to other countries, we see greater recidivism in, in the United States than we do in other places. Because that, of our that, adherence yeah. to this, this you could say, notion of free will, instead of the greater understanding of context and of where the person comes from, where they are, all the other factors that play in to overwhelming, shall we say, one's or influencing one's free will yeah. and treating those instead. Like, does this person have the ability to get a job? Does this person have a support system? Does this person have proper mental health treatment? Does this person have tro- pro- proper medical treatment? Does this person know how to read and write? <laughs> yeah. Does does this person have anyone that loves them and takes care of them? Uh, without those things, it's it absolutely increases your likelihood of committing a crime in the future. Which, of course, if you're you know a free will zealot then you're like well they chose to commit that crime they didn't put themselves up by their bootstraps blah 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 blah. if you want a human to make apparently good free will choices you got to give them enough inputs that are positive and healthy and tools in their brain that they can use and that's when they end up making good apparently free will good choices right yeah interesting yeah i didn't know that consciousness and free will dipped into that area that, that you brought but up. I agree with you a hundred percent about the zealots, <laughs> like how destructive that can be. Yeah, yeah. They're so like man. They're the mansplainiest mansplainers on the <laughs> on the internet, man. It's like I, I see them. T- I'm just and I, I never participate because I just I'm. I guess <laughs> my free will is smarter than that. But, <laughs> but uh, I'm always just reading their comments, like, dudes. You're so it's a weird echo chamber of of superiority that they have. And um and I'm all, every time I read it, I just like what working definition of consciousness are you operating from? Because right. I don't think it's shared by everyone. Like are you that dumb that you don't understand that the word consciousness might be defined differently? That the concept of free will is a pretty complicated philosophical concept. Like it's, you know, when we're talking about free will, we're not talking about granite 
You know, <laughs> when we're talking about granite, it's like you can break down the atomic structure, maybe even the quantum structure. When we're talking about free will, it's not a thing. It's a, it's a socially constructed idea. And different pockets will define it differently. And to the mansplainers on the internet, they define it a certain way, which is fine. But pull your head out of your ass and recognize that that's not the definition. It's not the yeah. working de- There are so many definitions to consciousness. And when you actually, uh, when I actually listen to uh, philosophers and scientists that are deep in the consciousness research and thought, I barely understand what they're talking about half the time. I mean, there's a whole topic of like, if you take the, you know, we tend to think of the consciousness at the very least, the homunculus is in the brain, right? Or yeah. let's just say in the nervous system. Well, you take, you know, your brain stem and the brain and you just like plop it in a vat of water. What consciousness do you have at that point? You know, and somehow you could somehow keep yourself alive. You can oxygenate yeah. your, the blood in there. So, you know, there's a, there's an IV of oxygenated blood. You know, it's, it's a mortifying kind of thought. It's a, you know, they have this on Futurama and this sort of thing. But just imagine. It's the dream state. Yeah. You're in the dream state. You're simulating reality at that point. <laughs> right. So, so you're, you're a brain in a tank of water. What consciousness do you have? Well, right. within a half an hour. So, one, you can't see anything. You can't hear anything. You can't, you can't feel anything, probably. Um. And all you can do is sort of think, like, what is happening right now? I'm in, right. A, I'm in a big black abyss. I can't feel my arms and my legs. Right. I, I, within minutes, you would lose track of time. You would lose track of who you are. You would start to hallucinate probably because the brain starts to produce thoughts and, you know, and yeah. sights because it, it feels it needs to produce something to sort of see. That's a thought anyway. You, you would probably... Uh, become a mess of discombobulated thoughts and completely confused within 24 hours, maybe less. So, yeah, it's so, be. so is consciousness in the brain? Uh, well, clearly consciousness depends on our body. Okay, so take your body, put that in a vat of gel that keeps you alive, and you have no sense of temperature or space or up or down or time. You know, you can't look at a watch. There's no human beings. There's, there's nothing to look at. But you have your body. And you can feel your arms. You're floating in a black abyss space. How long do you hold on to reality at that point? Well, maybe a day and a half before you completely lose that. And we have experiments like this, by the way. So our consciousness actually depends on the world. It depends on humans and trees and desks and gravity and animals and computers and air and you know sleep and the sun and like consciousness our individual consciousness depends on everything and so and i'm not explaining it very well but uh, but when i've heard people explain it essentially consciousness is a product of every part of your environment including your brain and when you include all those things that's what consciousness emerges out of. Consciousness depends on everything existing in the world, you know, that you have sort of awareness of and your own body and your brain, like all those things work in concert for the emergent quality of consciousness to happen. I, I tend to believe that, that the additional additions just create a, a, a richer mental experience. But, uh, you know, we know that someone with no legs or someone who's blind and deaf can still have an inner mental experience. I think the extremes you name, of course, yeah, like I think especially someone that who's all, whose brain is already used to seeing, hearing, feeling, etc. And then all of a sudden that's deprived and there's no explanation. I do think that in, like madness would, would ensue for sure. But I don't believe that it's intrinsically uh, required to have all of these. Inputs. No, 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 no. And we know this, that when yeah. people can't see and hear, that their brain will start to adjust for that. And so they perceive through touch and other, other sensations. And they start to map their world through the perceptions that they have available to them. Yeah. Uh, a 3D dimensional world that 
And so they might not see the car. They might not know there's a car across the street, but they definitely know what's going on around them. And they have a, a virtual 3D map in their mind, the same way that we construct a map of the world through the senses of sight and, and hearing. And, and superhero stories have taught me that in those cases, yeah, they're even you better. A superhero. <laughs> yeah, they're even. Yeah, as, as soon as you're blind, you're you're the most badass ninja that ever existed. Because you know they they sense things so much more acutely. Like, it's like like radar, like a bat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And bats are superheroes too. Anyway, um, so uh, you know, Book of Eli, Daredevil, uh, what the the blind samurai guy, anyway. Satoichi. Yeah, Satoichi. Yeah. Um, some of the, you know, not bad productions. Anyway, point is, is that I don't know anything about consciousness and I'm talking out of my ass. Uh, final word, Berto, on social construction, on, uh, where did we get started? On I, uh, different languages so- <laughs> and on consciousness. I've been socially constructed to poke holes at social constructionism. Uh, and that's because I have the free will to do so because my consciousness originates from my tummy. <laughs> and my free will, influenced by social constructions, is compelled to tell you that you uh, should take care of yourself. And because you <laughs> because socially constructedly deserve it. 